Brian McClanahan Show, episode 396. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. When you do enroll, you get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. There will be a new course out in February, so you're going to want to get that. And it's going to be an awesome course. It's part one of a new four-part series that I'm working on. This is going to, I think, change some minds about the Constitution. So that's my hope anyways. Of course, you can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You get my book plate. You can get my autograph on any one of my books. Just simply buy one of the book plates. I'll sign it, send it out to you. And that, of course, lets me in on you need to get some of my books. Now, I've got a recent book out, Southern Scribblings, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. It's a great book. Uh, You're going to want to pick that one up too, and you can get it autographed with the book plate. So just go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you get books, at least those online retailers, and you can get Southern Scribblings. You can also support the show by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Of course, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get podcasts. Do all you can to get people thinking locally and acting locally. That's how we grow the show and get people involved in what we're doing. This is, I mean, these are important times, and thinking locally and acting locally is really the only way forward I think, as you're looking at what the general government is doing. Now, there's some other things happening. And I mean, look, there are people that are trying to work through the court system and do some things and trying to combat the Biden administration and some of the executive orders and some of the things that have happened. We're going to see the court start slowing some of this down, I think, because if there's one thing the Trump administration did well, it was put a number, and of course, the Republican-controlled Senate with Mitch McConnell, they put a number of conservative-leaning justices on the federal bench all throughout the system, all throughout that branch of government. I mean, you've got them not just in the Supreme Court, but in many of the appellate courts and district courts on down the line. So you really do have a what should be marginally considered conservative influence on the court system. But really what's happening now and I find very interesting is a battle for the heart and soul of American conservatism. Now that Trump is gone, here we are, it's been about a week, has been a week exactly, since Donald Trump has been out of office. We're starting to see some people talk about where the conservative movement goes from here. You've got the people that got involved because of Trump, and I think Trump's personality was certainly something that would draw people in. But then you've got the factions that have been there for a very long period of time. And in this particular week, I'm going to do two podcasts this week, each one focusing on 
first principles. And what I mean by that is where does where does American conservatism go? Where does it come from? What are the foundations of it? These are things that I think we need to discuss. Years ago in 2012, which is now you know nine years ago, I wrote a book with Clyde Wilson entitled Forgotten Conservatives in American History. And uh, this is something we might actually update in the future. I don't know when, but we've talked about it. The book's almost 10 years old. But what we did is take and look at men and women who would be considered conservative figures, traditional American conservative figures. And this is something that's essential, you know, because most people get their quote-unquote conservatism from talk radio, whether it's Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or Glenn Beck or... Uh, Levin or, you know, some of the other people that are on talk radio, Savage, some of these people that, of course, are uh, prominent voices on the conservative side, supposedly, of the American political spectrum. But I find it interesting because another episode this week, I'm going to talk about this 1776 report and the 1776 project and how that really is a distortion of what it means to be an American conservative. It's a vast distortion of what it means to be an American conservative. And I think that's part of the problem. And I'm going to go back when I do that and talk about the Republican Party. because, And I'm going to do it both times this, this week. The Republican Party has and always will be a political sham. It's not conservative. It never has been conservative. You have conservative people that have attached themselves to the Republican Party. And you look at people like you know, today, Rand Paul or Thomas Massey is a libertarian more than anything else. But you've got a few people in the Republican Party that are worth their salt. And you find it on the local level, too. You'll find a lot of local Republicans who are good people. They are certainly interested in promoting what are traditionally American conservative positions. But yet they struggle with it because from the center... From the media, you get this perspective from people like Dinesh D'Souza as well and some of these others, that the Republican Party has always been conservative, and it's these principles that they have that are American conservative principles. And that's a distortion of what American conservatism actually is. This is why I think it's important to go back to these first principle shows every now and then. And what I'm going to do in this particular show is talk about a great magazine, and then uh, a special issue they produced, and some of the articles in that special issue, which I think are very important. And the editor of this magazine, who has done a fantastic job in keeping this magazine going after, look, well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's Chronicles Magazine. For years, Tom Fleming, Tom Fleming, uh, Edited the, edited the magazine, and then he left, and it was edited by a man named Aaron Wolf. And Aaron Wolf was also a very good, rock-solid conservative, but Aaron Wolf, unfortunately, died, uh, tragically died, uh, at not a very advanced age. He was only in his 40s. And so they were searching for an editor, and they chose Paul Gottfried. Now, Paul Gottfried has been around American conservatism for a long time. And he was in a unique position to do something with this. The magazine had been bought by another group, and, and I think Aaron was working with that when he died. And so the direction of the magazine was kind of up in the air. Where was it going to go? Was it going to stay traditionally conservative? Was it going to move into a more mainstream conservative magazine? And thankfully, Paul Gottfried was able to keep it 
traditionally conservative. And this particular special issue, and they're going to do more of these when I understand, Remembering the Right, the Collected Articles, Special Edition Volume 1, so looks like they'll have more. But when you look at what they did, they picked biographies of individuals in the conservative movement. And what the idea is to do here is to get people into these first principles. In fact, Paul Gottfried says as much in the introduction. He says, sometime in 1982... The editor of Modern Age asked me to write a commemorative essay on European emigres who had enriched the American intellectual right. Even then, I had the strong feeling that the rising generation, if they still read the magazine that Russell Kirk once edited, would not be familiar with my subjects. I therefore mentioned Plato's idea that we are really relearning something when we imagine we are learning it the first in the, for the first time. Curiously, the Greek verb Plato used means both to learn closely and to relearn something that one had forgotten. I now ask those of a younger generation who identify with the political right to carefully study these sketches of thinkers who influenced our cause. The conservative movement has happily forgotten most of these figures, and in some cases even tried to forget them. Those on the right who learn about them will be in fact relearning the forgotten paths of their movement. This is an important statement. And by just producing this and keeping the magazine going in a traditional trajectory, right? I mean, it's we're, we're staying in this traditional conservative mantra. This has allowed for a reevaluation and reexamination of American conservatism. And I'll tell you how important this is. And, of course, Paul Gottfried writes all over the place. He writes for the website American Greatness, which is part of the Charlemagne Institute's canopy, I believe, of uh, websites. And I was received this email the other day, because I don't listen to the Limbaugh show very often. Every now and then when I put it on, when I'm riding in the car, I might put it on. But it says, famed conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh highlighted a column Friday by Dr. Paul Gottfried, editor-in-chief of Chronicles, on his, Jan- on his January 22nd radio broadcast. Limbaugh's comments focused on a column Dr. Gottfried wrote for the like-minded publication American Greatness on the recent Biden inauguration. Look at this, Paul Gottfried here, the title of the piece, The Mock Inauguration, Conservatives Should Treat the Biden-Harris Administration Exactly the Way the Democrats Treated Trump. And here's a couple of, of poll quotes. In brief, we are dealing with a left that has taken decades to emerge and seize the power it now possesses. If Pat Buchanan is correct when he says the left has it all, that grim success did not happen overnight. Revolutionaries are not single revolutions, I'm sorry, not single events, but processes. And the left has been moving for decades in the direction of its present ideological hegemony. Limbaugh continued by noting Gottfried's recommendation to respond to Biden's presidency the same way Democrats responded to Trump's. Conservatives in Congress should treat that the Biden-Harris administration exactly the way the Democrats treated Trump's presidency by totally disassociating themselves from any of its actions. This resistance could have started by ignoring the mock inauguration. Expressing his passionate approval of Dr. Gottfried's points, Limbaugh seconded the suggestion that Biden be not treated as legitimate in any way, shape, manner, or form and asked whether his audience agreed. So this is fantastic because Rush Limbaugh has now cited Paul Gottfried, who is the editor of Chronicles Magazine, who is trying to remember the correct right in American history. And that's where I'll get into the 1776 publication, which has now been scrubbed by the Biden administration and removed. 
It's amazing to me they did that because it's just a milder leftist version of American history. It's not the current woke social justice version of, of leftist version of American history, but a different leftist version of American history, which is, uh, you know, funny to me because it's the left battling the left, essentially, and conservatives are championing leftist history. So when you look at this particular collection of essays, and let me put up the magazine for you so you can see it. When you look at this particular collection of essays, you have people that are friends of mine who have written these essays, colleagues, not all of them, but people like Clyde Wilson and Zachary Garris, David Gordon, Bob Paquette, Jay Langdale, Joe Stromberg, Alana Mercer, Jack Trotter. Uh, these are people that I know, Joe Scotchy, uh, Alan Mendenhall, Jason Jewell. These are all people I consider friends, many of them friends or colleagues or acquaintances through various circles. And there's some other people in here that I'm not familiar with, but um, who also did a very nice job. And you look at the people that, that were chosen for this, and you think about who these people are. These are not Straussians. These are not neoconservatives. Though, I mean, you can, you can talk about how some of these people may be shaded toward that direction at times, but it's people like Emmy Bradford and R.L. Dabney, Murray Rothbard, Robert Nisbet, Eugene Genovese, Richard Weaver, Albert J. Nock, H.L. Menkeen, William Buckley, Wilmore Kendall, Whitaker Chambers, the Southern Agrarians, James Burnham, George Grant, Leonard Hand, I'm sorry, Learned Hand, excuse me, Russell Kirk, C.S. Lewis, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So you have these individuals who are certainly icons in conservatism, if you've been brought up on traditional American conservatism. But I would venture to guess, and if you're listening to this podcast and you're not familiar with a lot of these people, it's because you're not exposed to them on a regular basis. Because what you're going to get as conservatism, you might have heard of Russell Kirk, maybe. Of course, William F. Buckley. But I would venture to guess you probably haven't heard of a whole lot of these other people. Because they're not talked about. I mean, when, when people say American conservatives, they think of Rush Limbaugh. I think of Sean Hannity, and it's a big downgrade to go from Emmy Bradford to Rush Limbaugh, from Russell Kirk to Rush Limbaugh. Look, Rush Limbaugh has been fantastic for the American right in that he's brought a lot of people around to it, but his understanding of real American conservatism is, in fact, limited. So when you look at this essay, let's just start with this Remembering Emmy Bradford by Clyde Wilson. Now, Clyde and I wrote about Emmy Bradford in Our Forgotten Conservatives in American History. So we covered some of these same people, not all of them, some of them in that particular book. You can get that book, by the way, on Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble. I mean, anywhere you get books, you can get the Forgotten Conservatives in American History there. This is not a long article, and I want to go through it. Because what... What Gottfried essentially did with this is ground American conservatism insofar as he could in the South. He grounded it in the South. He put it, planted it in the South. Whereas on the other hand, when you look at the 1776 project, what you're going to get out of that is the South is the enemy of anything American, the enemy of anything conservative in America. It's, it's something entirely different. If you read National Review, if you read a lot of the neocon or Straussian websites, the South is the enemy of everything. And th essentially, the conservatives, what you would get out of this, are digging their own grave by trying to bury the South. Because you can't get around how important the South was to real American conservatism. 
to real American identity. When you bury the South, you bury America. Or you open the door, you crack it to the woke leftists who are going to take what you're doing and run with it. So let's look at this essay. Clyde says, anyone who met Emmy Bradford was unlikely to forget him. There was his imposing bulk in his Stetson cowboy hat, but that was just the trimming. This Oklahoman, long a fixture at the University of Dallas, radiated vast erudition, lightly worn and easily shared, often in colloquial language. He emitted goodwill and sparkling humor, fused with an antique courtly courtesy for all. Bradford was steeped in the history of Southern literature, much like Donald Davidson, the agrarian man of letters and poet under whom he wrote his dissertation at Vanderbilt University. Conventionally ambiguous politicians and public intellectuals didn't know what to make of this unswerving conservative and were puzzled by his old-fashioned persona. But those who understood the originality and importance of his scholarship revered him. Bradford's experience with the National Endowment for the Humanities may have been, in terms of his scholarly, scholarly accomplishments, the least important part of his distinguished career. He was among a small band of conservative intellectuals who had pursued a lonely and a lonely career-costing campaign of ideas in the 1960s and 70s. The election of Ronald Reagan encouraged us to think that we had at last found a place in the American Public Forum. In 1980, Reagan nominated Bradford to head the NEH, and an impressive array of senators endorsed him. Because of Bradford's extensive grounding in literature, history, and political thought, he seemed a fit choice to run an institution dedicated to fostering the humanities. This is a very important story, and a lot of people don't know it, and you think about where the split comes with the neoconservatives and the what are called often called the paleoconservatives, the old right, here it is. This is the story. How naive we were. And of course, Clyde is speaking in the first person because he knows he was part of this. In 1980, Clyde Wilson was 39 years old. He was just getting into the real highlight, the high point of his career. He had written a fantastic essay in the 60s, I think 1969, about Jefferson as conservative. And so over the next decade, he spent time sharpening his pencil. He'd, he'd been editing the Calhoun papers, and he had come across people like Bradford and others, and they were all in common cause with this paleoconservatism. How, I need, how naive we were, including Mel Bradford. There were others who were not interested in a debate over ideas, but who saw in the NEH a grand opportunity for shelling out patronage. Thus we witnessed a neoconservative blitzkrieg designed to undermine Bradford's appointment, which included the repeated disappearance of Bradford's files, the tortured interpretation of a footnote in one of his many books, and an orchestrated smear in the press. There was neither learning nor character enough in the Republican Party to resist this well-coordinated Onslaught. The lack of serious thought that finally went into the NEH appointment became clear, becomes clear when one considers that a manager for Reagan's appointment files was an Orange County businessman who thought Bradford's essay on Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Cream was about homosexuals. Bradford withdrew, and the NEH appointment went to a Democrat, the far less scholarly William Bennett, backed by the neocon faction. As far as I know, Bennett did what was expected of him and provided his patrons with lots of grant money. The operation against Bradford was a watershed moment in the divergence between the old right, who became the paleoconservatives, and the neoconservatives, who wanted to acquire increasing power in government posts. Their influence over American foreign policy led to catastrophic consequences in the Middle East, 
most unfortunately in an attack on Iraq after 9-11, the implications of which we still have not fully extricated ourselves from. A great deal could be said about Bradford's scholarship and the continuing influence it has had on thoughtful people. Deal briefly with this achievement, I will mention four of his many insights. So there was a nice, first of all, let me stop. There was a nice summary of what happened in 1980, which led to this split between the neoconservatives and the paleoconservatives. First is demonstration that the American War of Independence was not a revolution made, but a revolution forestalled. Unlike the French Revolution, the founders acted to preserve their existing self-government, not to overturn society and launch a global revolution for equality. This was true for the northern founders who Bradford studied closely, as it was for their southern counterparts. This emphasis on the self-government of natural communities has generally been typical of the plain folk, us deplorables who resist intrusive government tyranny and are wary of global crusades. This is important. I mean, you know, Bradford, as a southerner, spent a lot of time studying the north and northern uh, founders. In fact, his uh, founding fathers, its essays, its uh, biographical sketches of everyone who participated in the Philadelphia Convention is, is still the best. Uh, still very, very good. Second, Bradford showed that Lincoln abandoned the moderate aspects of the founding, at least rhetorically, in an attempt to give the Union invasion of the seceded South a universal justification. This wartime president appealed to a transformed America that would engage in a continuing revolution for the delusive goal of equality. This, in a more radicalized form, is the regime that we can do to live under today. To commit our lives and treasure to such a campaign has been to show, I'm sorry, sow mischief abroad as well as to pursue leveling social experiments at home. This second part is important because if you just take that, neoconservatives might agree with paleoconservatives on some things, but this really defines who the neoconservatives are. And if you look at the 1776 report, which we're going to talk about in the next episode, this is exactly what you get. It's traditional leftism. Third was Bradford's attention to Southern literature as an expression of, of a culture that stood apart from the American mainstream. American writers have generally considered themselves to be alienated rebels against a defective society. The great Southern writers of the 20th century, from Faulkner on down, as Bradford showed, were the faithful, non-alienated bards of the South. They might criticize the folk back home, but always, until very recently, identified with their kin and region. Fourth was his continuation of an expansion of the wisdom of the Southern agrarians, a campaign that earlier defenders of Southern values Richard Weaver and Bradford's teacher Davidson had begun, had begun a wisdom that goes against the American grain but has never failed to find disciples. In the march of life, this agrarian vision has never lost its relevance when we speak about a genuine American conservatism that is rooted in a sense of place. And this, this collection of articles has an essay on Weaver and one on the Southern agrarians. You gotta have them both to talk about American conservatism. Those who share this that vision shun the worship of material progress, particularly when the progress is linked to government efforts to improve human nature. Like the agrarians, Bradford also recognized in his writing and speeches that political and economic centralization of power destroys the liberty and well-being of a people. As a moral teacher, he finally condemned the bigness sought by Americans eager to stretch the republic into an empire as another false idol that turns us away from the local and humane. He understood that a culture poured in from the top in the modern American way is no culture at all. 
Genuine culture arises from a settled people, skips middle-class learning, and finds ultimate expression in the occasional natural appearance of genius. Bradford had become nationally known as a controversialist even before his unhappy experience with the NEH due to his debates with Lincoln enthusiast Harry Harry V. Joppa. These generally civil discussions centered on the question of whether equality should be celebrated as a conservative value. At the time of this exchange, Eugene Genovese, though still nominally a Marxist, let it be known that Mel had won hands down. Of course, Eugene Genovese is also in this particular collection of essays. That, again, 1776 report somehow puts forward the idea that that American conservatism has this very French vision of equality. All of these essays attack that. All of these essays get into this idea that this vision of equality is not, with a capital E, is not American conservative. It's something else. He finishes up, perhaps we should end this sketch of a truly wise scholar with a representative passage of his work from his book, A Better Guide Than Reason. Quote, Let us have no foolishness, indeed. Equality as a moral or political imperative pursued as an end in itself, equality with a capital E, is the antonym of every legitimate conservative principle. Contrary to most liberals, new and old, it is nothing less than sophistry to distinguish between equality of opportunity, equality, equal starts in the race of life, and equality of condition, equal results. Those who are equal can take equal advantage of a given circumstance. This particular collection of essays is so good. And all of these essays appeared in Chronicles Magazine. But that one was just fantastic. And if I had to pick another, of course, that we need to focus on, and let me just go back again to first principles. This is first principles. And it has to do with the Southern Agrarians. Because the Agrarians predated Bradford, and I think that you get to this. And, of course, you could say, well, then, what predated the Agrarians? Well, that's John Taylor of Caroline. That's people like Nathaniel Macon. That's John Randolph of Roanoke. In many ways, it's Thomas Jefferson. This commitment to federalism and to place matters. This is when I get to think locally, act locally. This is what I'm hammering home. There's a place that you, ha- that you come from that matters. Scotchy wrote a great book. Um, I used to, it's a collection of essays, edited a book, a collection of essays from the old right. I think it's entitled Paleoconservatives. It's really good. He also collected, uh, did a collected, um, I believe he was part of a book uh, uh, with uh, Mel Bradford. Uh, he's written a bunch of other stuff too. He says, In 1920, a group of writers gathered at the home of playwright Sidney Hirsch, in Nashville for bi-weekly sessions of reading and dissecting each other's prose and poetry. It was the beginning of an outpouring of creativity from a group that would try to defend and restore the traditional Southern way of life against the rising tide of industrialism and the philosophy of progress. The group became known as the Southern Agrarians. Two years later, they launched a literary magazine called The Fugitive, which, though short-lived, would become one of the most noteworthy literary landmarks in American history. The group was led by Vanderbilt professor and poet John Crow Ransom, Other members included Donald Davidson, also a Vanderbilt professor, and some talented undergraduates, among them Alan Tate and Robert Penn Warren. These four men would in a few years become the nucleus of the agrarians, something known as the Twelve Southerners, or Fugitive Agrarians. In addition to the aforementioned, the Twelve included Andrew Nelson Lytle, 
Frank Lawrence Owsley, Stark Young, John Gould Fletcher, Henry Blue Klein, Lyle Lanier, Herman Clarence Nixon, and John Donald Wade. Later, they will be joined by Cleanth Brooks and Richard Weaver. The Agrarian Heritage remains an astonishing achievement. It began with I'll Take My Stand, a collection of essays to which each of the original 12 contributed. Those essays define the range and the purpose of what became the agrarian movement. They never embraced a specific political agenda, though they came close to doing so in a second volume, Who Owns America?, which featured nine of the original 12 essays in addition to several others, including Brooks and Hallier Belloc. Thematically, the emphasis in the second volume is largely upon the economic foundations of industrialism, and it's, it's probably the most trenchant attack on capitalism ever published in America, outside of Marxist circles. This, is, again, is important. The agrarians, the Southern tradition, is anti-industrial capitalist. It's not anti-market. It's not anti-free market. It's not anti-making money. But it's anti-corporate welfare industrial capitalist because industrial capitalism often relies on the state, the welfare state, to get involved to promote it. And so the agrarian attack was very good in that way. Taken together, these volumes establish a distinctive Southern conservatism, which has, in one way or another, continued to spread its influence down to the present. This is evident in writers as diverse as Ralph Nader and Wendell Berry, both in our political thought and in our literary heritage. Now, Nader and Berry would be considered leftists, but what they're doing is trying to conserve the natural world. In the late 1930s, and especially the wake of World War II, many of the fugitive agrarians became dispersed in the pursuit of their various vocations, but continued to refer to each other as brothers and remained a frequent contact. Most importantly, they remained productive. The 1930s and 40s would see poetry collections by Ransom, Tate, Davidson, and Merrill Moore, biographies by Tate on Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis, and by Lytle on Nathan Bedford Forrest, literary criticism by Ransom and Tate, histories such as Frank Owlsey's groundbreaking Plain Folk of the Old South, and fiction including Warren's All the King's Men, and Caroline Gordon's masterpiece Penhali. Gordon, who married Tate in 1925, later mentored another great Southern novelist, Walker Percy. For many of the agrarians, literary interests predominated other socio-political concerns, though the South continued to be the setting and the inspiration for their work. Ransom and his students, among them Tate Davidson, Warren, Lytle, and more, were determined ever to sever Southern verse from the perennial Moonlight and Magnolia school. Thomas Hardy and Joseph Conrad were early influences, so were, too were T.S. Eliot. Yet even as they embraced Eliot's literary modernism, the Southerners placed their stylistic innovations at the service of a, of a traditional, deeply conservative view of history and human decency, as did William Faulkner later. This is clear, for example, in Tate's great poem, Ode to the Confederate Dead. Ransom was the unquestioned leader in the early years, a poet praised by Robert Foss. He had ascended to the top ranks of American letters. Tate and Davidson were especially inspired to emulate their master. Ransom, Tate, Warren, and Brooks became part of the larger world of American letters. They were especially productive in the realm of, in, of influential literary quarterlies. Warren and Brooks at the Southern Review, Ransom at the Kenyon Review, and Tate at the Swanee Review. All ended up leaving the South to teach elsewhere and subsequently all received honors in their republic in the Republic of Letters. Warren is the only American to receive a Pulitzer Prize for both fiction and poetry. Ransom and Tate were both awarded the Bollinger Prize. Tate served as the chair of poetry at the Library of Congress, and Warren, in 1985, was appointed the nation's first official poet laureate. Robert Frost is mentioned here. His name is Robert Robert Lee Frost. He, was, he loved the South. 
Robert Frost loved the South. In the 1930s, Ransom and Tate, along with Warren and Brooks, became the founders of the so-called New Criticism, which became a driving force in academia for decades, beginning at Yale, where Warren and Brooks taught. The New Critics had no use for Marxists or any political reading of literature. They simply examined the text, searching for what Brooks memorably termed a sharping joy in works of art. A shaping joy in works of art, excuse me. Ironically, Yale became the site of the undoing of the New Criticism when a French import, Deconstructionism took hold there in the 1960s. Deconstructionists fo- focused on canonical, canonical authors, but, their hand, but in their hands, the text was shorn from, of its for, formal integrity and the very idea that a literary artifact might convey a stable meaning was attacked. As an offshoot of their literary criticism, the agrarians excelled in another genre, textbooks. For decades, Warren and Brooks is understanding poetry enlightened generations of undergraduates. Similarly, Davidson's American Composition of Rhetoric, first published in 1938, and revised for later editions, exerted a lasting influence along with and along with Weaver's A Rhetoric and Composition Handbook, published in 1967. Open these books on almost any page, and you will find samples from Aristotle, John Milton, Robert Frost, Kenneth Burke, Francis Bacon, Herman Melville, and many others of the same caliber. One might trace an almost distinct line of descent from the classical Greek and Latin curricula that predominated in the southern schools in the 19th century down to many of the readings and rhetorical principles featured in these textbooks. Lytle, Davidson, Weaver, and Owlsey traveled a different path. All were far too conservative to gain much recognition from the Manhattan Ivy League literati. Instead, they, like Flannery O'Connor, stayed home. Davidson at Vanderbilt, Owlsey at University of Alabama, and Lytle at the University of Florida. While Weaver escaped the University of Chicago, to summer at his ancestral home in Weaverville, North Carolina. Lytle Davison and Davison never wavered in the devotion to the cause. Both represented their whole man, the whole man. Lytle was a novelist, short story writer, teacher, editor, biographer, and memorialist. There was more to the man than the printed word. As a teacher, he nurtured O'Connor, James Dickey, and Henry, uh, Harry Cruz. He was also a legendary recontour. In the 1970s, Lytle retired to his ancestral log cabin and near the University of, uh, of the South in Swanee. There he enjoyed his golden years, entertaining an endless stream of visitors and well-wishers with songs, stories, and good cheer. His home, a friend recall, was, a cl- call, was the closest thing to a Confederate Valhalla on this earth. Davison continued to pursue multiple vocations as poet, novelist, essayist, historian, and teacher. His roster of students turned author is impressive. Warren, Lytle Brooks, Weaver, Mel Bradford, Dickey, Elizabeth Spencer, Madison Jones, Randall Jarrell, Walter Sullivan, and Roy Blount Jr., all pastor his classroom. After the war, Davison and his wife, Theresa, along with like-minded allies, formed the Tennessee Federation for Constitutional Government, designed to fight the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision. Like many Southerners of his generation, Davison feared the social upheaval that the Brown decision mandated. Yet as early as the 1920s, he befriended fellow poets at Fisk University, the historically black college in Nashville, and opened space on his Nashville, Tennessean book page to members of the Fisk English Department. In 1961, Davison published his final volume of poetry, The Long Street. There, as he had for much of his career, Davison expressed himself as a citizen poet, one deeply rooted in the traditions and folkways of the South. As Lewis P. Simpson has noted, Davison was virtually unique in his complete adoption of the role of, of Bates in taking on the ancient vocation of the poet as the seer and seer and prophet, and prophet who speaks out of the whole and living tradition of his people. Uh, this particular, uh, look, Lee in the Mountains, the Longs, these are great poems. 
that Davidson wrote. If you take my Southern Cultural Intellectual History course, I cover Davidson. Uh, but again, here we have this idea of the South as being an integral part of American conservatism. And of course, this one passage about Davidson and race, and he's going to look back at this. Oh, these people are all racist. We saw this with uh, a writer from uh, one of these mainstream conservative websites, Gracie Olmsted, who uh, apologized for writing an essay laudatory of the agrarians. Well, here you won't find that in Chronicles because you shouldn't apologize. What are you apologizing for? These people were saying the right things about a lot of right a lot of things. We not may not agree with them on everything, but they were saying the right things about American centralization, about American economy. They were saying the right things about regionalism, localism. Davidson's regionalism inspired Weaver, Bradford, and much of the paleoconservative rebirth of the 1980s. By contrast, William F. Buckley Jr. kept the Southern tradition at arm's length. It was too reactionary to have any national appeal. Yet, it might be that what seemed reactionary in the heyday of our long embrace of technological progress and industrial expansion is beginning to look more like prophetic wisdom. The agrarians wrote up for the survival of their homeland. They knew, as Davison knew in his poem Sanctuary, that if we forsake the past, we forsake ourselves. It is a trust laid on your lips as through a vow to generations past and yet to come. Excellent essays. If you can find this little collection of essays, I'd recommend it. Remembering the right, there's so much good stuff here, but in the next episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, we're going to get in the 1776 project because it was it was up there for like a day, right? Two days, and then it was scrubbed by the Biden administration. But still, it shows, it gives you kind of a window into what this intellectual debate is between the neoconservatives, the Straussians, and the old right. It's, it's right there in black and white for, white for you to see it. All right, I'll see you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.